Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Our next interview, chat if you will, is a gentleman I've come to know as a superlative manipulator of the Telecaster par excellence. By way of San Francisco, but now hailing from the Big Apple of New York City, the majestic Jim Campolongo. Greg's the man, but uh, yeah, it, you know, I've done a few of these pre, pre-COVID where the interviewer sounded like Orson Welles and I sounded like... Uh, we know a place. Well, I was going to say Wally Cox, <laughs> but uh, it's too old a reference. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, I have a song called Mrs. Buckley based off the uh, the bloopers of Orson Welles. Remember those Findish commercials that he did oh, where yeah. he was... <laughs> but uh, Orson Welles is one of my heroes. Well, I'll tell you what, you could have worse heroes. <laughs> oh, man, I mean, the guy was the guy was amazing. I mean, he had an amazing life. I kind of admire like many aspects of his life, other than his filmmaking. Just the type of person he was. He probably spoke like four or five languages. Yeah, you know, just was a seeker of uh, social activity. Um, you know, he's probably a great hang. Like the I'm best. sure he was. You know, I mean, when he's drunk doing a wine commercial which i mean he shouldn't do that right i i kind of it just admire him so much um just and and let's be honest jim he was a wisconsinite so there's that him and liberace that is correct Uh and don amici was also from you know (laughs) <laughs> that's uh i mean the the more and more uh you know just now that i'm kind of wisconsin conscious there's many great people came from wisconsin and and many people came from minnesota yes I mean, there's the obvious one bd but just there's a uh, dozens yeah. you know uh it's it's really great well my wife is from minnesota so there's another one so that all worked out Oh, that top of the list. So you look good, man. Well, you too, my friend. It's nice Thank to you. actually hang out and talk. We've always been like ships in the night at various different uh, functions. I think the first time we ever, well, I know the first time I heard you was probably about a dozen years ago. And I, I, it was on something where it was like recommended to check out, you know, a telecaster. And I see this guy with his telecaster. And initially, right away, I'm always thinking, well, is this going to be 
more of the same. Not that that isn't awesome, but you know, I, you know, you're thinking it's going to be a chicken picker, or it's going to be, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And then I listened to it. I was like, this guy is demented. I think he's my long lost brother. I got to reach out to him. And I remember I sent you a little message <laughs> on a good guy. It might have been MySpace for God's sake, but it was and, and something. Or I just was like. You know, and you probably thought, who, who is this guy? <laughs> well, working with David Croy, the CD designer, and uh, I mean, uh, album cover designer, and really like the album cover. I mean, uh, coincidentally, I just got a test pressing this morning for Orange because uh, we're going to reprint, uh, reprint it again. We had run out, and uh, so yeah, it's gone aluminum. And uh, <laughs> as the uh, case may be, but I listened to side one uh, this morning and I don't really listen to my, my records, you know, I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, you mix them and master them and all that. And that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. And, uh, but I listened to it. I, I was really enjoying it. And, um, uh, isn't it funny fun. how that is though? I mean, I don't know about you, but Kind of to your point of like, you don't really like to listen to it. It's almost like you have to listen to it by accident in order to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Because other than yeah. that, you hear every blemish, everything. It's just like, oh my God, I can't listen to it. It's just, it's frustrating in the extreme for me anyway. But I don't, I don't know about your own experience in that regard. Well, it's funny. Um, I mean, as time passes, uh, I end up enjoying them. I mean, sometimes it takes years and years and I'm in the process of, uh, I put uh, the the first ten gallons cats record, which has been out of print on CD, is uh, going to be was remastered for vinyl. Um, Table for one, same thing, uh, out of print CD. It's been remastered for vinyl. I did live at Rockwood, which just had run out in orange, and two guitars, the new one. Yeah. But one time I was vacuuming, and I was I had uh, like what is it? Um, when you know random play on iTunes, yeah. and I'm vacuuming, and I'm like, "Wow, this is really good." And uh, so you know, I stop, and I'm like, "Is that Mark Rabot?" And uh, I go to, the, and then I walk over to the computer. I'm like, "No, that's me." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was uh, Jim's Blues of all songs. I you think I'd recognize that uh, off American Hips. And ever since then, I really liked it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I know what you mean. Yeah, that's my best story. So I don't... <laughs> But I totally can relate. I, I'll hear something by accident. It's like, oh, man, that sounds good. What is that? And I'm like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> as soon as I find out, it's like that. Well. But uh, I enjoyed listening to your new record, uh, uh, Two Guitars, this morning. I... I, I I go for my spirited perambulations in the morning and I go and I it's my only time to kind of listen to music and and fortunately are kind of uh, a good and bad thing is my my lovely wife is currently not working at her job so we've been walking in the morning together so I haven't been listening so this morning I was going out on my own I was like I'm gonna listen to the record and I tried to get my earphones going and my little connector wasn't working because I don't know if I've mentioned but technology and me are like Anyway, so uh, I just listened to it on the phone using the phone speaker, and I walked, and I walk in this nice park, and and um, great autumnal themes, Jim, if I may be so bold, exist on this record, at least in my strange prism of perfect uh, of perception, and but I really really enjoyed it. I enjoyed. Um, 
you know, the mood indigo especially was twisted just to my liking. But it's just beautiful. I mean, the, the tones are great. And there's some great, what is that one tune? Is it, is it Denise or how do you say that? The, yeah. That yeah. I mean, I it wouldn't hold you to have to match all the names with the uh, instrumental tracks, but there's um, kind of a pretty. Yeah. That's a beautiful song. Denise. Yeah. It has two S's, but it is pronounced Denise. Yeah. I enjoyed that immensely. So I, I enjoyed the record quite a bit. And uh, so tell us a little bit. I, I read a little bit about how it was kind of an accident that you guys originally teamed up as a duo when the other band members didn't show up at a gig or something like that. And you decided to do this, this uh, pursue this idea of a duo record. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all kind of came about? Uh, I'd be happy to. Thanks. Um, well, me and Luca, uh, we, we met a few years back. I can't remember what specific year. And I saw this group he was playing with, uh, Honeyfingers. And they were doing, it was, with, it was Johnny Lamb, David Speranza, Russ Meisner, Luca. Hope I'm not forgetting anybody. And they did this like Jimmy Bryant kind of thing. And it was amazing. It was, uh, it was so good. And they do it. But they would, it wasn't like um, a Halloween, you know, like putting on a bunch of clothes and the right equipment. It was still right. kind of unique and they had their own touch to it, but it wasn't uh, a real stretch. Like, let's say the 10 Gallon Cats, my band, which was kind of inspired by that, but was completely different. And uh, so we ended up talking and, uh, you know, we got together and we, we loved playing together. I actually had to relearn some things. And uh, there's a, a pretty good video on YouTube, uh, Jim Campolongo and Honeyfingers at the 55 bar, which kind of captures that beginning era. And then we um, started doing my tunes and we recorded last night, this morning with uh, Jim Campolongo and Honeyfingers. Uh, since then, Luca and I produced two records together. We did uh, Zephaniah O'Hora and another Ryan Humbert in Ohio. And so we've worked together, we played together, and we did some gigs. You know, meanwhile, we're playing gigs. So it all leads up to this one gig with a lot of history behind us of working together and communicating. And I really, I love Luca and I love the way he plays and he's an idea man. Anyway, we have this gig and it's snowing or something and some members couldn't show up and it was at the 55 bar six to nine. Okay. So it's three hours, you know, sometimes you could fake it for 45 minutes or 50 <laughs> minutes. But, uh, so anyway, we said, well, let's just do it as duet. Um, we could do this song, this song and this song, and then we'll worry about, you know, the second set later. So the first couple songs, I felt like, we were trying to make something happen and, um, you know, ching, 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 you know, kind of doing Django rhythm. And I can't remember, but at some point we both just relaxed, tried to, to not make anything happen to where it just started feeling, you know, I was acclimating towards it and it just sounded full. And that's always the best place where I feel like I didn't need to play even with two guys. And, uh, at the end of the gig, we kind of started being on the foothills of, hey, this was pretty good, but we could pursue this. And uh, that's that's how, you know, it was born. Um, initially, too, I mean, uh, 
I don't know how to put this, but I mean, both of us and the older you get, you become so aware of of how great some players are. I mean, like Lenny Bro, for example, yeah. uh, Chet Atkins, Jerry Reed, and, and the kind of records those kind of guys made, George Barnes. Yeah. And I initially felt, geez, can I do this? Like, can we do this? Like, uh, to enter this pathion. And, I mean, that's still debatable, and I'm no Lenny Bro, but we discovered we had something that I found special. And so, you know, we got together, and the first session, and I don't want to go on forever. I'm almost done. The first oh, please, session, please continue. <laughs> well, I don't want to make people sick of my voice, but um, uh, we, it was March of 2019, right? So pre-COVID. And I said, hey, Luca, let's book a day at Bunker Studios where we did all these other projects that I named. You know, the Zephaniah, Ryan Humbert, last night, this morning. I might even be forgotten. Luca recorded his own solo record there. And I said, let's go there. I go, at the very least, we can get, um, you know, we can, we can go out to lunch and, and get Thai food. And, you know, we always get a coffee at this place around the corner um, with uh, Aaron, the engineer at five. I go, at least let's just look at it like it's a good hang. No pressure. And, and maybe I was speaking to myself more than him. I don't know. But I went there with really trying not to have any expectations. And it, uh, we were relaxed from the beginning. And if I'm looking at Luca and holding my guitar and he's holding my guitar, all of a sudden, I, I feel a, a certain confidence and relaxation. I'll think, well, Luke is here. <laughs> going to be good. So um, we ended up doing that session. And I had no, I was on the brink of pneumonia, which didn't help. Um, and uh, then I think a couple months later, I had listened to the record. I can't remember whose idea is whose, but I kind of felt like we didn't have enough to make a record. And uh, I had spent some time on Mona Lisa, written um, Nice Dress and written uh, Blade of Grass. And we got together, and that was in December of 2019. Okay. And we were supposed to mix that day. And I said, hey, can let's try and record three songs and mix those and mix three other songs during that day, which is crazy. You know, I mean, at this point in our careers, we don't have like unattainable goals, but we ended up doing that and uh, which was great. And that's how we came up with the record. Awesome. Well, it's very, very enjoyable. It's uh, it's fun just to listen to. But as a guitar player, it's glorious. The sounds are glorious. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you grew up in San Francisco and sounds like you spent the majority of your life there and then you decided to move to New York. So talk us through uh, your initial experiences in, in San Francisco. I mean, it's interesting when we when we broach the subject of, you know, you know, telly guys, because there seems to be um, 
I don't know, for, for lack of a better term, that you came out of the womb with the Telecaster around your, you know, you, you, that, that was the only guitar you ever wanted to play, that, that was the only thing ever, and it's and it's almost like a cult. You know, not that it's a negative thing, it's just a thing, at least from my disturbed perspective. Like myself, I, I started playing a Tele because it was the Fender guitar that was available to me, and it just was an effective tool, and as time went on, that, that took root, but... Um, I, I'm curious as to your, your early formative years, uh, what kind of music you were listening to and, and your initial outlook as far as what you envisioned as, as what kind of music you wanted to get into. Were you, how early on was your vision kind of solidified, at least in its embryonic state, that it developed into what it is now? Or was that a whole process after a, a series of years of being out there? And then what ultimately brought you out to New York? Not that that's a long ass question, but <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, um, it was the latter that it was a process. Um, part of the reason was, I mean, it, it, there wasn't much information when I was learning and and how I learned. I mean, I was lucky enough to take uh, lessons from a woman named Bunny Gregoire for about six or seven months. And uh, so, you know, I didn't play the guitar upside down or anything. But um, prior to playing guitar, um, I would, uh, I loved music and I, I loved long improv, but I didn't know what that was. So, um, or what it was called or who did it. So I would buy records based on the length of the track. Um, and I got really lucky. Uh, I, I, I've told this before, but I got John Coltrane live in Japan. I got a Larry Coriel Barefoot Boy. Um, I got John McLaughlin Devotion. And this is, I'm about 12 years old. I mean, and I was really into the Beatles. Um, I knew the Beatles were good. The first record I ever bought was Jimi Hendrix's Greatest Hit. So I was listening to that. That's weird because that's the first record I ever bought. That is, you know, I, when that comes up and I say that people accuse me of lying because it's cool. Like most people will say like, oh, the monkeys or something, but it was, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, you know, with the poster with them on the horses. Yes. Yeah. I still have that. Um, I bought it at Kmart. <laughs> I got mine at this place called uh, USC. Um so it was like pre-Kmart. <laughs> but uh, that said, so, and I had seen, my, my, my father called me in the living room, and I'm like around 11 or 12, I'm not playing guitar yet, um, to watch Roy Buchanan uh, on the oh. PBS special. Um, and I really liked the sound. I didn't know what kind of guitar he was playing, you know. Um, and so, anyway... And I really liked Eric Clapton. Uh, I got Derek and the Dominoes live. So now I start playing guitar. And I, I mean, I've got to make this, you know, abbreviate this somehow. But a lot of the guitarists I liked um, played a Tele or a Fender guitar. Right. And the first good instrument I got well, it was a Gibson uh, 330, which had single coils. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I got a 54 Les Paul that had single coils. That And, and when I listened, there's some recordings of me, and it sounds like a Telecaster. Um, and eventually, I went to a Strat, 
of I have the 62 Strat I played for about 10 years um, and then moved to a Telecaster. Um, And at that point, when I got the telly, I was aware enough to know that's what sound I wanted. Right. Um, So it was a very conscious thing. And I can't remember what year it was. And it was not like I'm some big innovator, but, uh, you know, it might have been 88 or something like that. And where Hamer guitars and Lab Series amps and, you know, that was a little more fashionable than a Telecaster. Sure. Um, But that's when I got one. And, you know, it just felt like home and it was the sound I I really liked. And I liked it for the same reasons you did. You know, it was a sturdy guitar. It was close to my body. I didn't have to, like, reach over it. And, you know, it just felt really comfortable. so I ask you uh, real quick, did, did you have siblings or did you have people around you that were into music or was any did any I, of that play into the, any of this? No, I mean, I wouldn't want to take, you know, too much credit for what my discoveries were. I mean, my, my I had older sisters and they listened to some good music that I'd kind of hear through the bedroom wall or whatever. Um, or if they were in the living room, I'd hear it. I remember they they, they had good taste. They were, uh, the things I remember were Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks and the Incredible wow. String Band. My mother actually brought home some Yardbird records, which was pretty hip, um, that I heard. But I was kind of on my own, um, more or less. The guy, the kid across the street from me played acoustic guitar, and that really made me aware that it was possible. Um, And my father had played um, piano pre-World War II. (laughs) Um, And I think he played some hotels or something, but I never heard him play until maybe I was 26 or 27 or something. He uh, you know, people would ask him to play and he'd say, nah, too, you know, too many hand trucks because he was uh, he delivered beer. Um, okay. Yeah, he was a, a union truck driver. So there, it wasn't like a musical household uh, by by any stretch. I mean, compared to some, you know, Chris Morrissey, who I play with, his father was a, a pro and his mother taught music. Um, you know, it wasn't like that at all sure. for me. And that's kind of like why my journey, like when you asked me this initial question, and we haven't gotten to New York yet, was pre-internet, you know, Italian kid in South San Francisco, um, really doing, uh, you know, like archaeological (laughs) digs to to find the the next piece of uh, spine, you know, I mean, it was like, Hey, I like this record. This guy's on it. Maybe I'll see his, if his record's good. And sometimes it was right or trying to find information. And any information I got, I really would pursue it and and, and bring it close to my heart. But it, it took it just took longer, you know. I had a actually a ceramics teacher who turned me on to Django Reinhardt. Ah, um, yeah, uh, Mr. Raffello, because uh, uh, we could bring in records to play. And I think he noticed that my records were different than the norm. And uh, one day he brought in a Django Reinhardt record and played it, and I really dug it. And uh, he said, you could have it. 
and I still oh. have that record. There's still a little clay on it. <laughs> yeah. So, that's that's a good story. Yeah, I kind of forgot that one, but um, <laughs> so any little morsel or or each chunk of inspiration I could get. Now, did you do the, the traditional thing where you're, you're you're playing guitar in high school? You play in, in jazz band, and they get you to play in the pit orchestra and, and doing all that kind of stuff, or was that not your... No, I was like kind of a rebel, I guess, but I was lucky enough to meet um, uh, a couple of guys, um, you know, when I, I got into high school. In that summer, right before I went into high school, I had heard about these guys in my hometown, South San Francisco, who jammed. And uh, one was a guy named Kenny Owen, who ended up being the drummer of the Ten Gallon Cats many years later. A guy named Dennis Young, who was kind of, he was older than us. Like, he was 22 or 23. I thought he was like 100, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, and eventually, uh, a bassist, Bill Brady, who was real good. I mean, looking back, these guys were very good. And we'd play. Um, I was actually, at some point, somebody uh, was trying to get me into the jazz band in high school, but I thought I was too cool or maybe I probably was really afraid because, uh, you know, I, I, I just didn't take the opportunity. So we were more playing rock and lunchtime and after school on the weekends and trying to figure out, <clears throat> you know, how, how, how does one sound good? And, uh, but it was really beneficial for me. Um, I learned a lot from the guy, the older older guy Dennis, and uh, Kenny and Bill were a great rhythm section. Um, but that's basically it. Um, we were clustered away in a garage. And so you started doing gigs with this particular lineup, and did that did did you after high school did you go straight into gigging, or did, did you go yeah. to college at all? Or I mean, we we me Kenny and Bill were kind of ended up becoming like a little trio. And I, I, I can't remember exactly what we were doing, different, different things. And we met this guy through an ad, and it's the summer right after high school. So I'm still 17. And this guy's name was Michael Frost. And, we, and he, he, I mean, I just, he was 28, but he wrote tunes, and they were good. And uh, he had a friend who became our manager, Dennis Leffler. And uh, it was a great experience. I mean, I was gigging when I was 17. Um, and the other thing that was kind of magical was Mike, Michael Frost, the piano player, singer, songwriter, was swinging. Like, ba-doom, doom, 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 doom. And I wasn't, I mean, it sound, I sound like such a dummy, but I really didn't know what swing was. I mean, I didn't know you called it swing. Right. And it was magic. Like, as soon as we started playing with them, because intuitively, I think I went, you know, or something like that, instead of what maybe we were doing that was a little more. And so that was a real magical area time. I think I'd been playing three or four years and. And I was, I've heard somebody, you know, lately during the COVID thing, I've been going through old recordings or I have a friend, Brian Dunleavy, who's 
um, going through cassettes and converting them to digital. And I heard some radio, our, our group with the swinging thing was called Radio City. And I heard an instrumental we did, this is about a month ago, and I was, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not complimenting myself, but I was amazed at how good our, our time was. Yeah. Um, and real strong, and my, my solos, though, you know, one-dimensional in a sense, um, you know, told a story. I mean, and right. I think I've been playing like three years, you know, uh, um, and I wasn't a prodigy or anything, but it was good. And so at that time, we played a lot, and uh, it was a great era to do that. Um, we're, I'm talking 1977, 78. So I, uh, we were playing clubs all the time. There weren't DJs. Uh, the music was very playable. I mean, if you could, you know, you could go, uh, you know, you're playing a top yep. 40 hit. And, uh, and, and I could learn. Um, so we played a lot. And then my cousin had a country band and uh, they, those guys played all the time. And I started playing with them and that kind of got my country thing started. And they had a real good singer, um, good rhythm section. There was a really good drummer, Jimmy Hel Helmar. Um, and these guys were all better than me. I mean, in some ways. Uh, and so playing all the time. So either playing clubs or we played like the Elks Club every weekend, you know, <laughs> all the Elks Clubs, the Moose Lodges. And that was a great way to learn. Well, let me ask you in regard to going into music and gigging all the time. You're a young feller. Um, how about was there any how was the experience from your parents? I mean, was it was were they supportive of what you were doing or was there the pressure of, look, at some point, you got to, you know, the whole get a real job, go to school, all that kind of stuff. Was that in play at all? Or they're just like, hey, cool, do you be you? Uh, how was how was that all panning out? Yeah, I think I think. Um, well, after I, I kind of started forming this path, my parents became pretty uh, supportive. Okay. Um I mean, looking back, you know, I mean, there wasn't as much. Uh, stuff to to be distracted by then that's true absolutely you know i mean you know uh but i mean i was excuse me i was uh, there's a little fly in here i think he's actually a friend of mine he's been in here for a couple <laughs> weeks i don't want to kill him i swear to god um but uh i was so like i had a laser focus on it um from the get-go and i think they appreciated that. I, I think my father, you know, God love him, who's, you know, passed away a couple of years ago, was concerned about my how I was going to make a living. But it wasn't, you know, go to, you know, go to Yale and become a you know doctor. I mean, I think my dad was just concerned that, um, you know, I mean, how I, I was going to be a blue collar uh a guy who made a, a a reliable living, and I didn't really pay much attention to that. But they were supportive. They at one time that they let us have a concert in my uh, their garage. Um, I think it was on Halloween, and you know we opened the garage door, 
And uh, my dad had, my dad worked for the city, so we kind of knew the cops. So he said, hey, look, like, come by and keep an eye on it. But, you know, if it gets noisy, we're going to stop at 10. And we put on a big concert. So my parents were cool. Um, and they'd come see me and stuff. There wasn't any pressure. I mean, it, I think when I was around 30 or 31, I think there was some concern about what I was going to do with my life. You know, I remember relatives going, you know, Jimmy, we know you're going to make it, you know, and, and it's like, <laughs> you know, like they think you want to become a beetle or something. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, other than that, it was it was like, just do what you do. You know, you be you. Excellent. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And so how, how quickly, I mean... So you start gigging around. How quickly until it was morphing into more of your original thing? And and did you gig around not just San Francisco, but started venturing out? Or how did that all kind of develop? Well, it's everything took me forever, Greg. Um, I mean, I did some creative things uh, from, you know, let's say 20 to... 33 okay uh or 31 or something like that i don't know 30 uh some some creative stuff that i'm proud of and i was learning uh but i hadn't really um you know found whatever voice i had uh on a, in a large scale you know like here's nine tunes i wrote right I hear you. um and uh there was two significant things that happened. I mean, the, I realized that I really wanted to play country music. Oh. Um, and, and I was going to hell or high water. And so I got a country band together. And that's when I really started to define whatever voice I have. And after the country band ended, I, I, I decided I wanted to just be an instrumentalist um, and that I could just depend on myself. Uh, and I really thought it was commercial suicide. I mean, uh, I was really into, I'm about 31 now, okay? So late bloomer. Um, and I decided that I, I really loved Jimmy Bryant and Leon Rhodes and uh, Jerry Reed and all that stuff. And I'm just going to get a country-esque instrumental band that nobody could dance to. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> yeah. And, you know, prior to being do, just deciding that, there was some pressure like, oh, my God, I'm going to be 30 or... Um, you know, like, is it, you know, making demos, hoping a record label might be interested, you know, not totally that, but, you know, th th certainly what your big toes into that. And I was just like, the hell with all that. I'm going to do this, this thing that's 
country-esque instrumentals that no one could dance to, you know, in San Francisco, which had a country scene, but it was more um, an hour away or, you know, in, in uh, kind of in more of the rural areas or San Jose. But what about, uh, wasn't Jimmy Rivers was from that area, right? Were you hip to him back then or? I, I, yeah, totally. Like at this point, like for sure. I mean, I am possibly seeking him out, meeting him and playing with him. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and or certainly that was and that's a really good question. And I might have forgotten that at this time when I'm ready to, you know, thinking, hey, I want I'm going to commit to this. You know, I was studying Jimmy Rivers and uh, that kind of music and met him. And he really opened some doors for my like how I played because his genius was getting a very abstract idea and um, compressing it into like a really simple equation. Um, like, for example, like, if you know, we played uh, I Got Rhythm Changes, you know, and I'm trying I'm Let's say we're in B flat, and I'm thinking B flat, B diminished sevenths, uh, you know, uh, C minor seven. Okay, we could go up chromatically, or you know, go. I mean, all this movement, and you know, he'd be like ripping over it. And I, I asked him, I go, "What are you thinking of?" Like, you know, it's just kind of a dumb, you know, one of those questions. Like, like, what's your genius? But um, he, I said, "What are you thinking?" He's like, one five one five one five and and he demonstrated it to me and i was like hey that kind of works and <laughs> intuitively he was playing chord tones but it freed me up to think less and he did that with numerous things like cutting all the fat or and certainly cutting out all like the tritone substitutions and the right. real book and all that um but, you know, at that point, then I started writing instrumentals and that led to the 10 Gallon Cats, which was my first record that was under my own name, uh, which I'm reissuing in vinyl, by the way, um, at some point, maybe in December of this year, January 2021. Awesome. Crazy. I remember what... I I hadn't heard that Jimmy Rivers stuff until, of course, well after I'd heard of, you know, Jimmy Bryan, and I I can't even remember how it how it came across my um, my attention. But I remember listening to it and just going, "This guy is, is unbelievable." And there was no bass player. It was like all of these, you know, from that club. It was just that like, a series of live tapes from them playing at that club, and they're talking about Buffalo Burgers being available uh, for sale and so on and so forth. And it was, I think, it was just. The pedal steel player was killer. The lap steel player, I think it was drums and guitar, wasn't it? And most of those were. Cool. I mean, I think there's a bass player. It's a Brisbane Bop. Um, I exactly. Actually, that's that's I it. I actually lived in Brisbane. Oh no way. Yeah, and would play the Twenty Three Club. I played the Twenty Three Club with Jimmy, um, and the steel player was Vance Terry. I discovered that record. Unless there's something else to be said about this. Um, I discovered that record by going into Jack's Records. I think it was on Page Street in San Francisco. 
And uh, those guys, you know, they were kind of this boutique record store of guys that like had buttons, banned the CD, like, you know. And I went in and I said, I, what are the best versions of Stardust that you have? And the guy like went through all the records and he gave me a Billy Jack Wills record, which was Bob Wills brother, I think, and, and some other records, Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote it, a great Hoagie Carmichael record, and some other records with Stardust on it. Um, and I totally let it up. I just, like, you make the call. But before I got to the cash register, he goes, you got to buy this record. And it was Brisbane Bop with uh, Jimmy Rivers. And I was like, okay. You know, it didn't have Stardust on it, but that's fine. You know, he was like insisting I get it. And that's how I discovered that record. Tell you what, crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah. So how old are you at that point? But that this this whole track you know, 30, 31, it's like right at the beginning of it. Like I said, it took me forever. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was 28 when he died. You know, you read right. that and you're like, God, I'm so, so mediocre. But it took me a while to get to that point and a lot of things fell into place once I just committed to uh, this one thing and I got some gifts like that. I mean, that record changed my life. Right. Now, I went in not controlling anything. Like I said, hey, I want great versions of Stardust. You probably know more than me. I'll buy them, you know. Right. And that's how I found Jimmy Rivers. Another really influential thing that happened, and I was playing with this guy named Doc West uh, in San Francisco, and probably nobody's heard of the guy. I mean, he was great, but, um, and he could play country, and I'd get together with him on Fridays just to play, but it was kind of like a guitar lesson, and I'd see, like, how these things were done. Um, because obviously it was pre-instructional video, pre-internet, just to see how somebody chicken-picked or did double stops. And he, he really opened some doors for me. But I was, like, finding the records was really hard. And I used to go to this place um, across the Bay Bridge, Emeryville, for, on Sundays for record swap meets. I'd get there before 7 a.m. on a Sunday and literally would, like, sometimes bought records out of guys' trunks, the trunks of their cars. <laughs> but I, I, want, I had Doc West, the, the guy David, his name was David, but he went by Doc. Doc West told me about these records that was the Steel Guitar Record Club. And if you were a steel guitarist, you join this club and every month or every few months, they'd curate a record you'd get. I have them all now. <laughs> like, you know, I said, how do you get these records? Like, that's what I want. Like, I want happening pedal steel instrumental stuff. And that isn't uh, Pete Drake, you know, all, with no disrespect. You know, the, he's on... Uh, Lay Lady Lay and stuff right. like that, but really more wild adventure stuff. Buddy Emmons, uh, sure. you know, and Buddy Charlton, and um, ask the names, forget, I can't think of it. But anyway, so he goes, if you want that stuff, you should talk to the guy who owns Escape from New York Pizza on Haight Street. I go, who's that? He goes, this guy named Joe Goldmark. I go, and he goes, here's his phone number, he'll be cool. So I called Joe Goldmark up, never met him. 
and I said, yeah, my name's Jim. I'm a friend of Doc West, and I really want to hear, like, happening country guitar and pedal steel. What can you do? And he called me back and left a message on my little machine and said, there's a cassette at, at Escape from New York whenever you go by. And I, he ended up being the pedal steel player in the 10-gallon cats. Ah, But he gave me this cassette, and it, it was like, uh, you know, finding out if, you know, there are aliens in outer space, like <laughs> or something like that. I mean, it was like finding the truth, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, like right. the Typhoid. And it had Joe May. Emerald Tablets. <laughs> Joe Mathis, Billy Bird, Chet Atkins, Hank Garland, like on this tape. And he had said who they were. And as I said earlier, probably 10 minutes ago, things were like an archaeological dig. Right. But I had the names. And right. so that was a great, too. I could get the records and I was trying to learn everything. So and uh, so that was what was happening. And maybe a year later or something. I took like a year sabbatical of just woodshedding um, and given lessons. And uh, I was with a woman, Mimi Woolsey, and uh, she came, you know, I was going to, I booked a gig and I was like, okay, I'm just going to book the gig and then let the chips fall where they may. And uh, so I had this gig at the Paradise Lounge, and she came in. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm learning tunes for this gig. And she's like, why are you learning these tunes? I go, because I love this music. It's the music that has formed me, and, you know, I want to present it like a curator. And she, and she said, you know, I think you, you're just doing it because you can't write any tunes. <laughs> and, and it made me mad. And I said, yeah, I go, well, I go, if you can write song titles, I'll write a song for every song title. <laughs> and like two and a half minutes later, she shows up with this list. And I wish, I don't know, I may have it. It was 10 Gallon Cat, Billy, uh, Batro the Robot, um, <laughs> Snake Stretcher, I think, was on there. Ah, um, like really good names. Right, <laughs> and uh, and so that's how I wrote the first Ten Gallon Cats record. That is a wild tale. It was kind of on a dare. <laughs> that is crazy. These are good stories, Jim. Okay, good, good stories. Let me ask you about the. Um, obviously, you've got your iconic Telecaster. Um, it's a 59, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Correct. And um, it's a top loader for those who are into that kind of minutiae. Uh, when did you get this instrument? When did you kind of come to grips with the fact of, hey, you know what? I got this guitar. I got me a chord. I got a Princeton. We're good. Well, it was, there was a weaning period because um, prior to, committing to country music, I was lucky enough to play in a really good funk band. And there was, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it was like during the era of Prince and Morris Day and the time and stuff like that. And in Oakland, which is like San Francisco's sister city, uh, there was a great funk scene. 
I mean, it was like where Tower Power came right. from and stuff like that. Um, Betty Davis, you know, um, uh, you know, is it, it, more underground, but like really good, really good stuff. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of it. God, I can't think of their name. Uh, but anyway, I was in a group called the Renegades of Funk, and I played a Strat through a twin and another Fender amp with the red knobs, had a lot of effects, had a digital metalizer going out in stereo. And, you know, I'd be like the rock guy, you know, like it'd be like, um, go Jim, you know? (laughs) So it was really fun, but I was really used to this big sound and compression and distortion. And, you know, I ended up just kind of scaling everything down. And uh, I got down to a Viberlux through a Chandler tube overdrive. I forgot what it was called. Like not not a tube screamer, but a tube driver, tube driver. Yeah. And I was in that country band called Van Riff and everyone in the group, the singer uh, Van Riff, and the bassist Tim Wagar are like, "Hey man, just plug into the amp. You know, you don't need you don't need the tube driver." And I was like, "I don't know. I kind of like it." You know, and they're like, "Man, just plug into the amp. It'll be happening." You know, and uh, and finally I listened. You know, it takes me a minute. <laughs> and we did a gig, and I was like, "Wow, I really like this." And it was a good room too. You know, it was like a big reverby room that. Everything sounded good, wood everywhere. And that's how I started just plugging in straight. Um, I, and I played the Viberlux until I moved to New York. I mean, a little before uh, I, I, I got a Princeton um, because uh, uh, Bill, the guy who makes the Klon Centaur, we were on the phone. He's like, man, you got to get a Princeton. They're really great. You know, and I was like, okay. And I got one from this guy, Bobby Black, who is a fantastic pedal steel player. Uh, I still have it. It's right there. That one is it all, People go, are you selling those? I go, no. And I just label like what kind of amp they are. And that's called Bobby Blackface. <laughs> but, um, so that's the first Princeton I got. Uh, but, you know, when I started plugging straight in, it just... It was like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. I have like a intimate relationship between my right hand and the, and the strings, and 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 compression allowed no compression allowed me to really control my dynamics. And again, it takes a little while to get used to it. I mean, when you hit you know some harmonics and they aren't compressed, right? You know, sometimes you're like, huh, I'm kind of missing this thing. But what I was gaining. I, I recognized and, and after a while ended up uh, benefiting from. The 59 was given to me. Um, I had a couple of tellies before that, but that one really, you know, felt like home. Um, well, the, the balance between the neck pickup and the bridge pickup and the middle, they, it sounds great. Now, did you mess with it at all, or is it just one of those magical tellies that those pickups match up so well or did you did you have well when i got it um you know i i i just thought it felt comfortable 
Um, I mean, it sounded great, but I wasn't like, I couldn't articulate anything like as well as you can. I don't know if I still can. Um, but the about a year or two later, both pickups snapped, like the wires inter internally. So um, I got some Seymour Duncan pickups put in it. And I really like those pickups too. Um, I liked them more than the original pickup, <laughs> uh, but I took them out. Uh, the Seymour Duncan himself rewired it and sent them. So I was like, oh, I'll put it back in. And at first I didn't like them as much as the replacements. And I can't remember what the replacements were. They now they got so many types, you know, it's like, and I lost them, whatever. Um, and so whatever's in there was rewired. And, uh, and now I really appreciate it. The interesting thing, and Luca Benedetti pointed this out, is I only play in middle position or treble. I never play in neck. I was going to ask you that because I was listening to that record today. It sounds like he's in the middle position more often than not. I, well, there's a story behind that, but um, I don't really hear that much of a difference between neck and middle. And Luca confirms that it suspiciously sounds the same. So I don't know what's going on. Oh, so you think uh, there's some kind of maybe some wiring skullduggery? Maybe. I mean, I have like really good repairman, you know, Flip Scipio and Lou Feminella, you know, who would say, hey, look, like this is messed up. So I don't think there's any obvious thing, but I don't know. They kind of sound the same. As far as being in middle position, uh, on two guitars, the record you listened to this morning. Um, that was because there was such a bad buzz. Um, ah. and, uh, you know, I have uh, the, you know, pickups where they're, the magnets are go against each other. Sure. So yeah, yeah. in middle position, which sometimes guitars don't have that, tellies. Right, exactly. Uh, so... I mean, it was weird because I, again, we've we've recorded at the studio like I don't know dozens, you know, hundreds of hours, and this particular this particular year, <laughs> um, there was a buzz, and that's kind of a New York thing. I'm sure it happens everywhere in the world, but I mean, sometimes I play the 55 bar, and it's like a buzz saw, right? And then some, then they'll go there. I play there. You know, I was pre-COVID. I played there the second Sunday of the month for 18 years. So that's a number of times. And, and like every eight times, it's like a buzzsaw. And that's what was kind of happening. So I just played middle position. And it kind of, um, I mean, I didn't harp on it because, you know, the show must go on. Sure, absolutely. Okay, you know that. Um, but... I mean, especially on Mood Indigo at first, I was like, man, I really want to be in bridge position here because I'm doing volume swells and sure. stuff. But it ended up working out, you know. I mean, I kind of like that it's middle position volume swells because they're a little softer. Yeah. Um, but everything on that record is middle position. Um, it's crazy. So, it sounds great. It sounds magnifico. Well, it's kind of funny, though, isn't it? You get into situations where you're like, well, I guess this is going to have to do it. And you're like, just accept it as that's what was meant to be. <laughs> I mean, certainly that's the case. And I think it's underrated 
like because you know i'll go on the telecaster discussion page and there's like a you know 14 page thread about the subtleties of pickups <laughs> like this one versus this one versus this one versus this one or you hear of guys you know not to name names but going through 90 fuzz faces before they find the right one and to me it's like you know i just don't want it to buzz like a chainsaw and i'm happy there you, you, know. Go. There you go i get it believe me <laughs> and have you ever done a session where you're like and you just go back and go, I'm not saying a word, but this is the pickup selection. No one said Exactly. Any. Yeah. Sanctuary. Sanctuary settings, as I like to <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I worked with uh, uh, Fishman on, on those those pickups, which I was pleased that the way they turned it out. And, you know, you, you have those people going, you know, noise is part of the sound. I'm like, yeah, that's all well and good until you're making a record. Or you're working for somebody else. Like, can you do something about that buzz? And then you go, no, that's part of my sound. And they're like, um, yeah, well, we'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, or or if you let the cat out of the bag and go, well, you know, this is trouble position, the, the classic sound. And they'll go, well, can you turn somewhere? And it's always right. like in a corner and looking at the wall and right. inevitably you'll move and the buzz will come back. So I usually just go, okay, middle position. And, you know, I bring my hand closer to the bridge and approximate that sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can dig it. Well, before before we run out of time, I, I do want to get to the fact that you, you ended up moving to New York. And I'm just interested as to kind of your thought process of doing that. And obviously, you know, New York is New York. It's the hotbed of especially, well, of, you know, it's it's the Rome of, of the current era, as John Lennon said. So uh, tell us a little bit about you're going there. How was it and how is it? <laughs> well, um, I had come here to do a few gigs in 2001 and only could do one because of September 11th, um, which was the second gig I had. So that all went out the window. And long story short, um, you know, I, I returned to San Francisco and immediately wanted to go back. And uh, and I did. I moved here in July of 2002 okay. and uh, eventually moved in with the undiscovered Nora Jones and her boyfriend, ah. Lee Alexander, who I knew Nora was a great singer and Lee was a really good bass player. And that's this apartment. Ah. Um, which was on the cover of the New York Post after she won the five Grammys, which I've never seen anything like that. But basically, I was scared to death. I had uh, three gigs booked at the Knitting Factory in August of 2002, and nothing after that. And uh, sorry about the email. That's I'll me. You're not. Um, part of the charm. Part of the charm. Everyone is listening is checking their email now. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to meet Tim Lunsell and Dan Reeser and this trio thing I had been experimenting with really came alive and saw its potential. Um, and, you know, I was kind of, I had like a little bit of a cushion. I, I thought I had enough to stay here for six months and maybe return to the Bay Area with my tail between my legs. <laughs> And uh, but recorded American Hips and uh, which, you know, 
was the end of my cushion. So I really was on a tightrope and I was nervous about it. And, you know, at first I wasn't really, you know, it was like I wasn't used to the weather and, you know, everything's kind of harder here. Sure. Um, so I didn't like, you know, it wasn't like that girl, Marlo Thomas, where I was spinning around in wonder. You know, I was like, man, I'm tired, you know, and it's loud, you know. Uh, but I did, like, the musicians were great and great in the sense they were really supportive and kind and generous and, you know, kind of wanted me to stay, like I could tell. And... I mean, I can't express that enough, how real that was. And it wasn't because, you know, I mean, okay, I at the time I was different, especially then for like a guy who played telly and had country influences. And I think the musicians seen here and Tim and Dan, my band, recognized that. But it was, it was really a big part of it. I mean, I know that on American Hips, I had kind of run out of money and a, a, a bassist, Tony Shear, who plays with Bill Frizzell and is a great guitarist in his own right, said, hey, look, come to my studio one day. It's for free. We'll do it on the house. And Tim and Dan and Nora said, yeah, yeah, we'll come. You don't have to pay us. Oh. Uh, and we recorded uh, Sweet Dreams and... Uh, Another song called Stella that got added to the CD proper American Hips. And by that time, Nora had one or five Grammys. Uh, but people were just really generous. And that really appealed to me. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked out. I mean, I ended up playing with Nora and the Little Willies and got some commercial work because uh, my sound was different at the time. Sure. What was going on. So, and I ended up. I really love the people here. Um, you know, I really like New Yorkers and I kind of fit in, you know, in San Francisco. I mean, I'm kind of uptight and, you know, kind of a workaholic. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm not a terror to tour with or anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm punctual, you know. And uh, when I got here, I really appreciated that. Like everyone here is kind of here to work, you know, and uh, and. You know, the sound people were excellent, like things get done fast. So I, I really like that. And I still do. And what's it like now? I mean, I think it's a great city, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I mean, we got, you know, certain uh, political uh, figures saying it's a ghost town. Um, but, you know, I was here a few months ago and, you know, there was like, I don't know how many people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of New Yorkers were dying every day. And, right. um, you know, everybody started wearing masks and washing their hands. And I'm not saying it's licked, but it's like at 1.3% now instead of whatever it was. Right. Now, I'm concerned because a lot of local small businesses have gone out of business or are struggling but I don't see any alternative to that. Right. I mean, even I was just, at, and I don't want to get political or anything, you know, I hope I'm not, I'm trying to answer your question of like, what's sure. it like now? And everybody's fallen in line because we're used to that. Like, 
I'm used to inconvenience. Every New Yorker is. I mean, you go to the post office, it's like, you know, ah, it's lying. You go to Trader Joe's, okay? And I shop from the line. I mean, I just get in the line. It goes through <laughs> every aisle, through the store. So while I'm in line, I'm like, oh, yeah, I wanted that, you know. And I just stick it in my cart. Um, <laughs> when I visit my mother in, uh, you know, San Francisco, I go to their Trader Joe's. It's like I'm giggling, you know. It's like there's more uh, checkers than there are people in the Trader Joe's. So right. just, just to make a point, like I'm New Yorkers are used to inconvenience. So wearing a mask isn't a real big deal. Right. I get it. Um, yep. And it isn't. Indeed not. I mean, my father was, uh, you know, he, he was he was in World War Two in New Guinea for four years. He said that the rats were as big as dogs. He was fighting the Japanese, you know, um, at the time who right. were our enemy at the time. For four years, he had malaria. I think he went, you know, he got down to 120 pounds. I mean, that's an inconvenience. Right, right. <laughs> so, I, I get know. it. I, I mean, you know, Rockwood asked me to play in December, and I'm kind of on the fence about it because, you know, there's talk of the second wave and all that. So, I, I don't have a car still. Um, and that's a drag right now. That's a real drag. Mm -hmm. And some things that were really great a year ago, like, hey, I live by myself. I don't have a car. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's like right. oh, I've been alone for months and, you know, within this parameter of, uh, you know, three miles. But it's a beautiful city. I think it's resilient. Um, and... Uh, I mean, maybe it'll be even better, you know, um, and I'm no Pollyanna, but hopefully it won't be uh, Verizon Sushi. And right. instead, it'll be some weirdo who can afford a retail space who you go in and who acts like he doesn't want you in there. Right. And you're like, I don't know what he sells, but this is really interesting. There's records, leather jackets. You know, and, uh, you know, uh, oh, a, a cassette player, you know, because um, right. there was more stuff like that when I first moved here. Um, but it was uh, prior to rent being $25,000 a month. So I'm hoping some of these places become interesting instead of, uh, you know, franchise. Right. I get it. Because, like, who, who, if things are franchises, why go there? Like, what's exactly. the point of going to Scotland if it's round table pizza? You know? Exactly. So, you don't, want to, you don't want it to becoming generica, as I like to say. Like, generica is a good word. I like that. And I don't know if I've answered how it is. But, man, it could be worse. I understand. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to come out and visit you when this pestilence ends. I want to see you in action out there and cause a little trouble. <laughs> well, I hope you do. And uh, definitely let me know. Um, you know, it's uh, it seems like some wonderful, nurturing fantasy 
at this point to think about travel. Um, I have a clinic scheduled, I think it's October 5th, 2021, um, in Italy. And I think about that all the time, you know, I I think, oh, God, that's going to be so great. You know, I mean, I would anyway, but I mean, I was supposed to be in England as we speak. We had we had a tour of uh, mainland Europe and then of the UK, and so we just moved it all to next year at the same time. So, hoping that that happens. But uh, in October, yeah, uh, in actually in November. I'm sorry, it's a late yeah. October, early November. Yeah, I mean, one could reasonably hope that you know uh, that's going to happen. I mean, I hope so. Where where are you exactly? I'm in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Milwaukee area. So. so what's the situation in Milwaukee? I mean, I don't want to take control. Maybe you got to cut it short now. No, but- no, that's all right. Uh, actually, we're it's um, we're one of the hot spots right now. And as a matter of fact, they just opened a huge field hospital in um, uh, at State Fair Park because they're worrying about. Uh, overflow. It's it's pretty bad here right now. So I'm really and, sorry and, to hear that. And the scuttlebutt is is that if the uh, field hospital gets fifty percent filled, they're going to shut everything down again. So that's kind of the um, what we're looking at. And then um, and then other than that, we had and uh, our uh, particular suburb of Wauwatosa, where I grew up. I grew up in this area. Kind of did my thing, wandered around a little bit, and then when I started to have kids, we moved back to this town. It's kind of a cool little, uh, little town with cool old architecture and stuff. That's just out. Just, I mean, I could throw a stone and hit Milwaukee, but uh, you know, we had uh, we had armored personnel carriers in the streets and rubber bullets and tear gas and pepper spray. My daughter got pepper sprayed and ah. tear gas. So uh, crazy so time. What? So what was it? Black Lives Matter or what? We yeah, said? there was a there was a situation here that um, that was not handled the best. Uh, to say with the United least, Health- in regard to a police officer and a shooting and so on and so forth. So I don't want to get into all of that, but um, you know, it's uh, strange times, and certainly, uh, I think everywhere in the country, people are dealing with. Um, so many different things um and as musicians i mean i kind of it's a strange thing i I was talking about this uh an interview a while back is is that you know uh i do a lot of live streams and um as part of the things i do for wildwood as part of the things i do for fishman and then my band does a live stream every other week and and as musicians you know of course we have opinions of course we have staunch beliefs about stuff and I, i i try to stick to the fact that you know, I see the stuff that people post online that follow my band or follow me that I that are, you know, friendly contributors to conversations. And I might not necessarily or at all agree with what they're having to say. Uh, but I think it's my job as far as I see it to, is a bringer of hopefully goodness and the light or whatever you positivity that I don't uh, engage in any kind of... Um, uh sharing of my opinions in this matter and it's and it's it's strange because i mean we're dealing obviously with some some pretty significant uh disruptions certainly you know you'll talk to people that are older than we are that'll say oh there's these times have happened before and there was this that and the next thing and 
and my my kids are always like okay boomer let's do a quick review none of this stuff has happened quite like this before especially if you take in consideration you know climate situation and so on and so forth well the climate situation for sure um i mean one might could say well the mccarthy era or something like that right um but that said i know what you mean you know i don't think uh, sometimes i mean it's so tempting to voice an opinion on social media um and sometimes i ask myself well why do i think my opinion's important right um and i sometimes wonder if everyone should ask themselves that a little i mean aside from us learning about what's going on in our specific lives in our like i'm curious what's going on with you you're curious how is new york right. you know i might have niched open a door a little bit um, yeah, yeah sure i get it but you know i think people are coming here to get like salami like they want salami on sourdough nothing else and you know if we put a bunch of mustard on that they'll be like oh man i, I just wanted salami you know i didn't want pickles and i think that's how i kind of view it a little bit like if you know they want to hear you know uh gray cock and jim campolongo they don't want mustard right salami. and and you know and we even that salami we haven't talked a ton about gear you know it was just a nice conversation i really enjoyed it and uh had a lovely time so mission accomplished <laughs> well listen Jim, i really appreciate you taking time to talk it was absolutely fascinating and I'm glad we got to just kind of shoot the breeze. You know, I really wanted, I was very interested in all these different things and it was absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much, my friend. I hope you stay safe out there and I look forward to hearing more of your glorious music and hopefully getting to play with you sometime and hang out in New York. That'd be a blast. I'd love that, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. It was delightful. My pleasure. Likewise, my friend. Take care of yourself. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>